Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. state lawmakers passed a $229 billion state budget this week. As the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, the spending plan also contains many policy changes, ranging from what energy sources can be used for new buildings to raising the minimum wage. Governor Kathy Hochul, in her first year elected to office, saw some wins, including changes to the state's controversial bail reform laws that will give judges more discretion to choose bail when dealing with people accused of serious crimes. New requirements for electrification of new homes and building construction kick in in 2026 and 2028, and the minimum wage will start to rise to $17 in New York City and $16 for the rest of the state in three years. After that, it will automatically increase annually at the rate of inflation. The budget also includes a crackdown on illegal cannabis shops, and it will allow 22 more charter schools to open. Hochul, speaking as lawmakers began passing Passing the final bills says the package was worth the wait. When New Yorkers look back, uh, they don't care so much about the time element involved because that time element gave me the, the necessary time to really get signature bills and ideas over the finish line. There were some things left out of the budget. One of the governor's major proposals to build 800,000 new units of housing over the next decade was rejected by Democrats who lead the Senate and Assembly over a proposal to give the state the authority to override local zoning laws. Legislators also did not agree to Hochul's plan to ban menthol and other flavored cigarettes, though they did consent to raise the tax on cigarettes by a dollar per pack. The governor, for her part, thwarted an attempt by the legislature to raise taxes on the rich. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty says overall, though, he's satisfied with the spending plan. I would say when you take out, you know, some of the policy stuff, I think this checked a lot of boxes on the things that the members of the Assembly support. You know, maybe not at the levels that the members would have liked, but I would say this is probably, this might be the best non-pandemic budget I've seen in my 23 years in the Assembly. The legislature now has just over five weeks until the 2023 session ends. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Environmental groups in New York are praising the newly passed state budget, saying it will help the environment and projects to support municipalities and increase diversity. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. It includes a number of provisions that will impact the Adirondack and Catskill Forest Preserves. Protect the Adirondacks Executive Director Peter Bauer followed the budgeting process closely and says the Adirondacks came out fairly well. Not everything that a coalition of groups advocated for is in the budget, but there's a lot to be really happy about. Principally, the Environmental Protection Fund, which was boosted last year to $400 million, was funded at that level again this year. That funds a variety of critical programs for the Adirondacks. There's land acquisition money, over $35 million of land acquisition money. There's money for state land stewardship. In addition to that, 
There's funding for the visitor interpretive centers. There's a boost in funding for the Adirondack Diversity Initiative and a number of other programs uh, as well. So all of those things are highlights for us in this budget. Bauer highlights one of the individual programs receiving funding that should benefit the Adirondacks. It's funding the uh, SCALE program, which is a really innovative program led by Cornell and RPI, but working with the Adirondack Watershed Institute and the Adirondack Lake Survey Corps looking to update a major survey that was done in the 1980s around acid rain to look at, you know, about 400 lakes in the park around climate change issues. So that's really critical, and that'll give us a ton of information. The comprehensive survey of Adirondack Lakes is one of the most significant items being funded, according to Adirondack Council spokesman John Sheehan. Last time, it got about a half million dollars in funding to set up the program. This time, it got a full $2 million worth of annual funding. And that's uh, a very good start for the program and one that will help to get the major research projects underway. There is $2.1 million in funding for what is called the Timbuktu Summer Careers and Climate Institute. Sheehan says it's part of an effort to expand diversity in the Adirondack Park. This will help to bring a number of students from the Brooklyn area to Newcomb where they can learn about both the Adirondacks and careers in climate science. And I think it'll really help to diversify over time the ranger force as well. Adirondack Mountain Club Executive Director Michael Barrett is pleased that there is $8 million dedicated under the State Land Stewardship Funding for the Adirondack and Catskill Forest Preserves. Other than last year, this has never happened before. Even though the Adirondacks and the Catskills represent 6.5 million acres, nearly a quarter of New York State, we're always fighting for our piece of the pie. We don't have to do that necessarily anymore. We've got $8 million in dedicated funding. That's going to go towards the things that are important to municipalities, environmental organizations, visitors, educational stewards, trail work, recreational infrastructure, accessibility and inclusivity projects. This is what is to be excited about, the recognition by state legislators that the Adirondacks and Catskill Forest Preserve is a unique place and we have an obligation to protect it. The new budget also includes funding for a rail trail between Lake Placid and Tupper Lake, clean water grants for communities, and diversity programs. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok spoke with John Caney, the executive director of Reinvent Albany, this week. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that promotes open, accountable state government. Alan asked John Caney about transparency during this year's budget process. Well, let me just read what we had to say very quickly, which was, in healthy democracies, budgets are not secret and a month late. 
and emergency powers are not abused to rush bills to a vote sight unseen by the public and lawmakers. And how do you fix that? Um, and as you noted, uh, Albany has an inglorious history of um, what's three persons in a room uh, and backroom dealing. And the, the way you fix this is honor an existing law that requires a three-day transparency period between the time bills are printed and they're voted on, which is called the aging requirement, and which is already uh, in the law and um, is a, a basic common sense notion that lawmakers and the public and journalists should have a at least three-day look at what's being actually proposed in the fine print. So the, the way – so that's very basic, and that's already the law. The way the governor and the legislature get around that is that the governor issues what's called a message of necessity, which is an emergency power. And in this case, it's really an abuse of this emergency power uh, intended to avoid public transparency, political embarrassment, uh, opposition. And it's, it's simply an abuse of that emergency power uh, of the governor's, which is contemplated for emergencies, not for budgets that are a month late and um, uh, then passed in haste without anyone reading them. So um, those are just that simple thing, three-day transparency period or, or, or aging requirement and not abusing the message of necessity, uh, which is already the law. Um, would be would be very important steps, but that's a cultural change. And the governor and the legislative leaders like the way things work now, and so do what we call the Albany big dogs, which are the big stakeholders who thrive in that secrecy because they're extremely powerful. And those are the stakeholders that do the best in the budget. And the budget's always a story about winners and losers, and this one is no different. And the big dogs who won really big this time around uh, were Hollywood producers in the film and TV unions who got a whopping $7.7 billion subsidy from New York State taxpayers to make TV shows and movies, which is actually a reimbursement. The state sends you a check when you make a film or TV in New York for 30% of your cost. That's off budget. So there's other tax credits worth billions that are also off budget. So $229 billion in expenditures are just the on-budget expenditures, not the many changes to the tax code, which actually involve the state spending money. That's John Caney, executive director of Reinvent Albany, speaking with Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartoff. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York Congressman Paul Tonko attended a virtual briefing this week aimed at educating the public on how to save money and protect the planet by taking advantage of the Federal Inflation Reduction Act. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. In August 2022, President Biden signed the many-faceted Inflation Reduction Act into law hailed as a milestone as the nation gravitates toward clean energy in the face of climate change. 
The IRA contains several provisions to support the nation's offshore wind development, and supporters say it is poised to lead the way toward lowering energy costs in the U.S., ultimately reducing the inflation rate. Tonko, a Democrat from the 20th District, touted the IRA's numerous tax credits available for individuals and businesses aiming to ease their transition to cleaner energy consumption. People have to be made aware that incentives are out there and that they can result in major savings on your energy bills. The advocacy group Rewiring America found that those savings could be as high as $1,800 annually for an average household. And as you know, these individual tax credits and rebates are designed to promote energy efficiency and electrification. They cover residential equipment and appliances, such as the installation of heat pumps at and, and at-home EV chargers and solar panels on roofs. They also cover insulation, high-performing windows, electrical upgrades and wiring, and other elements of home retrofits. Not only will these replacements reduce greenhouse gas pollution, but they will save people money, money on their utility bills, their fuel bills, and certainly help stretch that home uh, budget. Tonko says if all goes according to plan, most of the IRA credits will be in place at least through 2030. He says it's yet to be determined who exactly is eligible for each credit, which specific products and brands qualify, and when these credits and rebates will be available to be claimed. So there's work for everyone there in terms of public education. And trying to decipher IRS guidelines about tax credits is complicated stuff. This will take some time, and not all the details are yet worked out. For tax credits, some information has already been released, and more should be coming out in the near future. But rebates that may be, will, will be required to take um, hold here might uh, take to the end of the year for all the necessary info to be available. And I'm really hoping that the administration will implement these credits in a way that is consumer-friendly so that people are able to take full advantage of them. Climate activist Paul Fisk says CO2 and methane released when fossil fuels are burned, trap heat, and warm the planet, while gas and diesel engines pollute and waste much of their energy as heat. They say that some 42% of America's energy-related emissions come from the decisions we make around the kitchen table. By that, I mean the millions of machines we purchase for our homes, the stoves, grills, cooktops, water heaters, dryers, space heaters, furnaces, and of course our vehicles. There are many opportunities to electrify and improve efficiency in our households. You can get community solar and wind in some cases, efficient heat pumps, high performance envelopes and then uh, insulation for your home, high performance windows, smart building controls, efficient electric water heater, efficient electric appliances and lighting, and, of course, our vehicles. Fisk adds that electrification incentives come in two parts, tax credits and rebates, which should be available later this year and when you file your 2023 income tax returns. Fisk says the IRS is handling the program and issuing rules on the credits. There are specific eligibility requirements and other parameters. And they're generally available to all homes with some income limits for vehicles. How do you claim the credits? 
make sure your household will owe enough federal income tax to be offset by the value of the credit. Make sure your purchase meets the tax credit's rele relevant efficiency and product standards. Save the receipts and get ready to fill out the IRS forms with your taxes. The credits are not refundable, so you need to have adequate federal income tax liability to claim them. Renters are going to be eligible for portable equipment. The electrification efficiency credits are not eligible for available for new construction, but the solar and storage credits are. There's more information, including audio of Fisk's presentation at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Back with us on the Legislative Gazette this week is Fred Cole, president of United University Professions, UUP, the nation's largest higher education union, which represents the faculty and professional staff of the SUNY system. Fred Cole, welcome back to the Legislative Gazette. Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. Well, it's over a month late now, but we have a state budget in New York, and it's a $229 billion state budget. I read through your statement that you issued. It seems like good news for higher education. Yeah, I think, um, well, I'll just say it was worth the wait. I'm glad we ended up where we did. We're very happy to see that the legislature and the governor agreed to add another $103 million to operating aid. When you add that to what the governor originally proposed, that is right around what we had recommended as necessary, around $160 million to get those distressed campuses that were hurt so badly by the Cuomo administration's conscious underfunding of, of SUNY. And then, of course, covid hurt them, you know, even more so. And here's an opportunity now to get that funding to those campuses that need it. We're looking forward to working with SUNY to see that happen so that then we can undo some of the damage that was done and start us on the road to building up the nation's uh, best public higher education system. We also commend the governor and the legislature. The governor proposed putting in more money, $53 million, to hire full-time faculty. What we'd like to see is let's take those adjuncts who are willing, are qualified, and want to be full-time faculty. Let's convert some of those adjunct lines to lecture lines. They did it in CUNY last year with the funding that was provided. I'd like to see uh, the chancellor and the board of trustees do the same thing in SUNY this year. And then there's the $75 million that the governor proposed and you know ended up in the final budget to expand programs and, again, to make it the system that it deserves to be and, and that all New Yorkers deserve. And, in fact, as we attract so many out-of-state students, the rest of the nation deserves it. We're speaking with Fred Cole, president of United University Professions. Fred, you mentioned, it caught my attention, and I need to disclose something here, is that I am an adjunct lecturer at the right. University at Albany. Of course, UUP has underwritten this program and other programs that WAMC hosts. But at the same time, it's interesting to me the idea of converting an adjunct, for example, like myself, to be a full-time faculty member 
knowing, of course, that there are degree requirements. You know, you can't right. just jump into teaching communications without a Ph.D., but I can teach broadcast communications as an adjunct. So how do you work through those issues? And I think what it comes down to is, you know, specific to certain departments, the faculty in those departments. I think back to when I was a department chair at Cobleskill College, and we had adjuncts who had their master's degrees, were all but dissertation degreed, and had been teaching in, you know, introductory courses at Cobleskill, moving them into a lecturer's position with that kind of degree background to teach introduction courses. Someone who was highly qualified, had a good track record of teaching. I think that's appropriate. And again, it is based on unique circumstances, but we also do have adjuncts out there who carry PhDs, who are highly qualified, both as teachers and as researchers, and oftentimes are teaching at a number of different campuses and sometimes private institutions and public to capture those and, and turn them into full-time faculty. I think that would benefit the university. It certainly would benefit students. So that's how we see the potential in those circumstances. Well, of course, SUNY system is very diverse. I mean, we're talking about campuses all across the state, and we're also talking about health centers, health sciences, and downstate University of Brooklyn. You've got other teaching hospitals, of course, and the issue of health in our society and staffing shortages and a pandemic that upended a lot of this. Are we on the right path now to ensuring that our health centers in SUNY are funded appropriately? Well, as with anything in the political realm, right? You know this. You don't get everything you want. You get mm. some of what you need. And on the hospitals, we would have liked to have seen much more invested in the SUNY hospitals. However, the legislature really came through. And, and I will say this, even though the executive budget did not include really anything that we wanted to see in terms of public funding for the SUNY hospitals, we maintained very good communication and dialogue with the governor's staff. And they heard us. They understood our concerns. They were open to hearing all of our perspectives on the SUNY hospitals, especially the SUNY hospitals, and the legislature certainly. Right from the get-go, they said they were going to include what's called the debt servicing for these hospitals. They're the only agency in New York State that has to pay the debt servicing for any capital projects they take on. You know, and that's a big expense, and it means places like Downstate that don't have the revenue don't utilize capital funding provided by the state because of the expense of the debt servicing. Well, that's in the budget to the tune of $65 million, so that helps. There is capital funding, which helps. There is also, as the governor had proposed and the legislature added to, there's $500 million in the distressed hospital fund. There's also $490 million to support the transformation of hospitals, the expansion of services, and SUNY hospitals are eligible for it. You know, obviously, they're going to have to, as is the process, fight for it within the bureaucracy of, of DOH. But it's clear that the legislature, and I believe the governor, have come to understand the central importance of the SUNY team teaching hospitals for two reasons. One, the patient care they have provided through the worst days of the pandemic, which of course is not over. Second, they also as teaching hospitals are going to help us deal with massive shortages in professions, some of which we're seeing already as in nursing, but studies show there is going to be a massive retirement wave coming among physicians other tech folks in hospitals and medical care. And this nation is not prepared for it. There must be a long-term investment in public teaching hospitals like SUNY's so that we are prepared. 
Can you imagine another pandemic where we simply do not have the staff to take care of patients? I mean, that's what we could be looking at. So we welcome the funding, but we also welcome the opportunity to work with the legislature, the governor, SUNY, the community, especially in downstate, to build that hospital back to make it an excellent place of health care for the community and a place where the most diverse of medical classes and cohorts can be educated. Well, let's look forward into the future for a second and higher education in general. A lot is being made lately out of AI, artificial intelligence. We even had one of the founders of it from Google warning of the dangers of AI. But there's also this idea that it could assist. Now, as a professor, my students using AI scares me that they'll be trying to cheat. But are we looking at this in higher education and how that will include, for example, from UUP's perspective, the workforce? How will AI impact people who are employed to teach, for example? Will it assist them in their teaching or will we have a replacement set of teachers known as AI professors? Thomas Friedman, you know, the uh, well-known editorialist writer, he had a great column in the New York Times a couple days ago. And he cautions about, you know, the dangers of AI without a society-wide conversation about ethics and morals and how we are ethically to utilize AI and to ensure that it does not fall into the wrong hands where it can be misused and create real harm. And in his column, he talks about how AI could be useful in dealing with the other major existential crisis, the climate crisis, and how AI could be helpful in dealing with that. Obviously, I'm not going to reject technological advances and say, no, we don't want them in higher education. We don't want them in healthcare. when, in fact, technological advances have helped, certainly, in healthcare. I had COVID last week, very mild case, but... I was able to utilize technology to visit my primary physician, get great care and advice, and get through it really quickly. That's technology and the advances in healthcare. When it comes to higher education, when I was teaching, distance learning was the new technology that some feared would eliminate a whole cohort of faculty. They are tools that can be used. But again, what we need to do with AI is to include the practitioners, those of us who are doing the educating and the students who are doing the learning in a real serious conversation. I hope we can do it. People don't seem to have the patience to have long, involved conversations about things like how do we do this ethically to ensure the legitimacy of what's happening in a classroom, virtual or otherwise. We have to move very carefully, and we have to include those constituent groups involved in education so that AI in any of its forms is used properly. He is Fred Cole, president of United University Professions, UUP. Fred, thanks again. Thanks very much, Dave. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our executive producer is Alan Shartalk. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2318. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.